0: What is the magic that makes one's eyes sparkle and gleam light up the skies the name of the game is lightworks play <laughs> when they Podcast 112, and it is entitled Kipling's
1: Light Works, a slight play on Raymond Scott's, to my way of thinking, exquisite number that we've just heard. I would like to make one announcement and then one very brief preliminary note before speaking a little more today about the light that Rudyard Kipling has shed. First, I'd like to say that the podcast 112 is dedicated to my friend Stuart Gerson. Stuart is not only someone who understands Rudyard Kipling very deeply and really knows Rudyard Kipling's work in a um, a systematic uh, and really vigorous way, but he's a friend who combines tremendous intellectual comprehension, curiosity, and uh, penetration with heart. And it is just such a joy to be able to dedicate this particular cast on the light of Rudyard Kipling to Stuart Gerson. The note I want to add has to do with Mrs. Bathurst. Mrs. Bathurst, of all of Kipling's short stories, is probably the one that has been the most written about and the most considered and the most excavated because modern critics consider it a very early example of what today is called postmodernist or anti-modernist narrative, which is to say that the very alarming and... um, uh, unsettling and really grim story Mrs. Bathurst is, in fact, a story within a story within a story. I won't explain that, but that is, in fact, what I believe it is narratively. It is a story within a story within a story. And because... Um, Kipling deliberately left out as much as possible uh, of of chronological details that might help us to understand what really is happening in this enigmatic tale, Mrs. Bathurst. It uh, is grist for the mill for critical voices and critical students. However... I believe, personally, that there is a key to understanding Mrs. Bathurst that I have not read in the uh, lengthy and um, almost inexhaustible uh, study of this great short story. And that is that the ending, and please, there are no spoilers here, uh, but the resolution of the story is not um, understood from a child's point of view. Uh, Kipling was a person who was enormously in touch with his inner child. He spoke about this often in many uh, places. And um, it comes into his work frequently that there, that's why he wrote The Jungle Book, after all, and several of the stories of Puck of Pook's Hill, but definitely The Jungle Book. He had a flair or an inner uh, access to the archaeology of his life as a child that was almost unparalleled. In every age, we need people like this. And what happens when you read Mrs. Bathurst if you don't read it from the eye of a child, you miss out on the, if I may put it this way, for the child's point of view, obvious um, denouement. When you read Mrs. Bathurst from the standpoint of uh, the little child who knows about uh, Bruno Bettelheim's uses of enchantment, that is to say instinctively, the child who instinctively understands the Grimm's fairy tales and instinctively connects with Hans Christian Andersen, uh, if you see that, then the uh, famous, uh, extremely enigmatic uh, conclusion... Is, um, uh, is, is is not seen for what it is. It is obvious, in my opinion, to the child, and I speak here as a child, what has happened at the end of that story. It is absolutely obvious what has actually happened uh, at the very end of that story as it regards the um, discovery by the train track and I'm alert not to give it away because that does not give anything away but a discovery that is made at a train track the child reading this knows exactly what has happened and who is involved. It is entirely clear to the child, just as any great fairy tale, it's always clear who's going to, you know, when you, when you see the universal horror films uh, from the standpoint of a child, and they were simply adult fairy tales, it is absolutely clear who the vampire is and who the hero is and who um, the uh, um, malevolent maternal figure is and who the malevolent paternal figure is and who the kindly and who are the uh, avuncular and uh, insightful shaman mystic people, all of the different, the priest it is always clear. Uh, in the core of the archetypes in these stories exactly who's on first and when you read Mrs. Bathurst from the eye of a child and then work back from the inevitable conclusion that the child draws when you come to the end of the story then it's all clear now it's not clear in its details some aspects of the adult story remain shrouded the chronology is definitely something to really work up and I very much admire the critics who have done extensive con- Kind of um, confabulations or um, constructions of what the precise chronology is of the events told, which are actually over a short period of time, in absolute terms, in Mrs. Bathurst. But the where it is going is 100% clear to the child when you read it. That's why I remember first reading it, and I knew exactly what had happened. Um, and I read it again later, and I felt I knew exactly what had happened. And now, from the eyes of the Super 8 personality, I feel... And read it. Read Mrs. Bathurst from the eyes of a child reading a Grimm's fairy tale. And uh, the name of the game is Lightworks, because you'll see exactly what is meant to be stated. And then, if you read that clear conviction that the child uh, brings to it and draws from it, then everything else, notwithstanding some of the, the... Uh, 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 elliptical details uh, or partial detailing will come to mind. So that's my little thought. Mrs. Bathurst is, in fact, very easy to um, unravel, but only if you read it from the eyes of a child. Uh, That's a perspective that I give, and you can test it out when you read it. Mrs. Bathurst. Now, let me talk about the light works of Rudyard Kipling. I'm going to read a couple of um, brief um, critical statements that were um, composed by T.S. Eliot in 1940 and 1941, as a result of years of study of Kipling's poems and years of inward um, um, processing of these great works. And then uh, I will um, make a few cultural points about him, but I will not come to the political correctness issue. That is, to me, a passing thing. I will come to uh, something that I encountered not all that long ago in my career, that taught me something about Kipling and life. And then I'll say a little bit towards the end about something that Stuart Gerson, so, um, in my opinion, perceptively stated about the the way that um, Kipling always undercuts the very conviction that he states and is so associated with colonialism or whatever aspect of of uh, the white man's burden that you see in his work. He almost always undercuts it with the opposite, which makes him into a both-and figure and really a profound one. He is no uh, jingoist. He is, in fact, a man of a tremendous... Um, um, layers and that uh, is enormously uh, plain in a couple of these songs, especially his epitaphs of the war, 1914 to 1918, with which I will almost conclude. Although we'll actually conclude with um, a uh, a cake that uh, has a shelf life of many years and that um, I'm in love with. Now, on that uh, strange note, uh, let me read uh, what uh, Eliot says an immense gift for using words, an amazing curiosity and power of observation with his mind and with all his senses, the mask of the entertainer, and beyond that, a queer gift of second sight, of transmitting messages from elsewhere, a gift so disconcerting when we are made aware of it, that thenceforth we are never sure when it is not present. All this, concludes Eliot on page 22 of his intro. All this makes Kipling, a writer, impossible wholly to understand and quite impossible to belittle. Well, we're not talking about ideas. We're talking about a person with a gift, curiosity, observation, a mask, and most significantly, his disconcerting gift of second sight. Now, that quote leads to an immediate uh, second quote, Which relates to um, a point I want to make concerning uh, his most famous, was once his most famous poem, uh, Recessional. And here it is uh, where um, we have a point on page 33 where Kipling says this, and this is relevant. I believe, to the listeners of this podcast who are um, coming from the standpoint of Christian faith, as I am, and am trying to learn from this magician, as Collingwood called him, R.G. Collingwood called him, this great uh, Joe Meek alchemist of uh, of truth and experience that uh, adds something uh, very rich to what you might call a Christian perspective also on reality. He writes this, Kipling's vision is not a Christian vision. This is Eliot writing now. It is not a Christian vision, but it is at least a pagan vision, a contradiction of the materialistic view. It is the insight into a harmony with nature, which must be reestablished if the truly Christian imagination is to be recovered by Christians. Well, that is very interesting. And what I want to say is, uh, here is that um, Kipling's um, sense of oneness with nature, and oneness with reality, which is a capital R, and which is God's reality, because he was a theist. Writer Haggard, his great friend, whose um, grandson I believe, uh, or maybe great grandson, was a um, director in England who directed Nigel Neal's. Um, almost ultimate work, uh, the Mass in 1980. But Haggard... Um always said of Kipling that Kipling had, had his, his Christian experience had been deeply damaged by a very legal uh, and heavy-handed early childhood experience with a what he called the woman as evangelical with a capital E, which is uh, something to look at in his short story, Baba Black Sheep, which if anyone has ever encountered the kind of negative Christianity uh, form of it, which Kipling did in their own life, will be most edified and fructified by ba Black Sheep. Uh, but Kipling, nevertheless, was a theist, and he was terribly at pains not to um, take the credit. He was also an artist, and therefore he saw the—I'm um, going to bring this out in a few minutes— he uh, saw the uh, the need for any creative person to ultimately uh, transfer the credit for inspiration away from himself because he knew it didn't come from himself, that real inspiration or the muse was always something uh, external to him, and so therefore he was very much uh, consistently at pains from beginning to end, right up to the very last story he wrote, which is a story about Ben Johnson and William Shakespeare um, um, composing a section of uh, Isaiah um, and also of Ezekiel, I believe, um, for the translators of the King James Bible in 1610 or 169. Fascinating story. It was Kipling's last story and was not anthologized, and therefore you have to look at You can find it. Uh, I think it's called A Proof of Holy Writ. And it's all about the creative process in terms of the great creator, Shakespeare, with Ben Jonson bowing the knee to something that is beyond himself. It's very, very theist and uh, actually very Christian in my view, but also reflects the humility which this man was always eager to. Uh, portray, but it was a humility before the power of reality and the power of something beyond your ken, your individual human gifts. And I want to talk about that in a few minutes. And what uh, Kipling is able to do as a humble theist, albeit not a Christian, is to bow the knee before the larger vision of the world, the reality, the cosmos, character, human weakness, human vulnerability, and uh, human transmission of the life force, which is nevertheless nothing that we Control or can manage, and um, you 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 see this particularly in *Recessional*, which uh, is considered by many people to be his uh, was considered by many people to be his um, greatest uh, contribution to the popular imagination. And I'm going to read it for a minute, and then I'm going to refer to *The Children's Song* and the Episcopal Church. <laughs> *Recessional*, 1897. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands thine ancient sacrifice, and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Now, note, he's going to talk about what we would call the British Empire, and yet he typically, and this was Stuart's insight, he's going to take away from what appears to be an, uh, an affirmation of colonial power and reach by talking about the fact that all these things are melting away and are fabulous. That is to say, they're phantasms. And one day, even soon, we will be left without anything called a human empire. And that is the bottom line of, of the faith position. And uh, Eliot believed that The Recessional was one of the great hymns ever written. But I want to comment more on that in a minute. Far called our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations spare us yet. Lest we forget, lest we forget. If, drunk with sight of power, we... Loose, wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget. Now he compares the declining empire of which he is writing at its apogee in the concluding verse of recessional. He compares it actually to heathenism and idolatry. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls not thee to guard. For frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. We might almost call that recessional American foreign policy. Drones control 2012. But my point is, this is a theist view. Now, Um, One of the most interesting facts of uh, the reach of a misunderstood Kipling who is constantly, with his both and vision, both affirming and criticizing exactly what he was affirming, because all pluses have a minus. There's always the yin and the yang. Let's call it the both and the and. Uh, in German, the, 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 what we see in the Kerzeite, the underside, there's always the, the zeite, the page we see, and there's the Kerzeite, or underside. Herr Moltmann always said that <coughs> the, um, uh, the uh, prosperity of Europe and North America uh, was built on the underside of, uh, isn't that classic? It always happens the uh power of uh this uh view is that the thekerita the, that the that the uh, prosperity of uh, Europe and the west was built on the underbelly of what we would call in those days the third world and the uh, southern hemisphere and how right is that and how much are we seeing it or benefiting from uh, the underside well uh, so we've in recessional notice it's not called processional it's called recessional and here at the very height of the things that he is supposedly affirming in his stories and he's not if you actually read them nor is he in his poetry he writes something called recessional in other words the tide is going out it's not the the sun uh, will always the sun is the sun will never set on the british empire it's actually the sun is setting on the british empire and that is the power of it but interestingly enough <clears throat> This hymn, which was often sung in days of yore, say in my own denomination, the Episcopal Church, and is in the 1940 hymnal, was cut in the 1982 hymnal. Now, why was it cut? Well, it was cut for the same reason that later on another hymn that I'll conclude this podcast with called the Children's Song which I'll speak about, was also cut. There is no Kipling text in the 1982 hymnal, which we use today in church on Sundays. There's no Kipling text. He was regarded as massively politically correct and a relic and a skeletal relic and possibly even a malignant relic of a bygone days of a kind of um, Europe-centric supremacy, which it was all of our duties to resist and overthrow. Well, that's not true. Um, The children's song is not... Strictly speaking, explicitly Christological, but it is utterly gracious and repentance-oriented and uh, God's grace-rooted, as I'll say at the end. And recessional is, in fact, a highly ambivalent and ultimately affirming of the recessive character of control and the regressive character. What did uh, Gerald Heard say? We go from success to succession to surcease to decease, to death, to cremation. (laughs) Well, take that. That's in a story by Gerald Hurd, H.F. Hurd, as he's known in his short stories, which I think is called The Arousing of Mr. Bradigar. The Arousing of Mr. Gratigar. Well, that's the fact. We go from apparent success to, or the failure of success, to succession, which always... um, Takes us away to surcease, to death, to decease. To cremation. Well, um, why were these uh, hymns cut? They were cut, uh, and I was a part of a subcommittee that worked on the 1982 hymnal. I just don't talk about it, but I was actually part of a committee that was chaired, a subcommittee of the committee to edit the 1940 hymnal for use in the Episcopal Church in 1982. That was headed by the very distinguished English uh, organist and choirmaster Alec Whiten, W-Y-T-O-N, who was at that time the organist, choirmaster, and um, music director of St. James Church. Madison Avenue in NYC. And uh, these hymns by Kipling were cut because... Not because, strictly speaking, political correct interests, but because they were not as seen as directly Christian. Now, that was a false issue. In other words, what they were basically saying, and I, uh, would, to some extent, backed it. I was part of that move, although I was critical of the re- re- revised um, hymnal on other atonement grounds, but that's another cast. Um, they were thought to be too deist or theist rather than Christian and Christological because Jesus Christ was not mentioned per se in uh, he is actually he get he comes in for quite a mention in all sorts of poems by Kipling i can name there are at least 12 that are distinctly at least well, more than 12 that are specifically Christian and possibly more than 12, more than 12 that are distinctly Christological, uh, possibly more more like 20. But um, these two hymns aren't Christological, so they were cut even though their insight is deeply rooted in a Christian understanding or shall I say a true understanding of life, which Christianity shares with other really wise people to this degree, understanding the nature of life, death, hope and reality. Now, um, so this hymn that I sang as a kid, as a child, repeatedly, like once every two weeks, the children's song in the St. Albans Chapel, the so-called Little Sanctuary, these hymns which we had as our childhood, which John Wayne quotes in um, um, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. He quotes it twice in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. He quotes uh, recessional um, or the fundamental um, uh, great um, uh, um, antiphon of uh, of recessional, he quotes the Lest We Forget. Brilliant, deep memorial there, which is also Cousins-esque. But nevertheless, that's gone because they didn't think it was Christian enough for the limited reason. Now, they thought that to to be a truly Christian hymn, it has to mention Jesus Christ, and therefore this becomes a kind of break front or a kind of wall or a kind of buttress against the world's secularizing trend. Well, I think that was wrong. I think that was a form of arbitrary... Um, break front, which didn't prove to be true. And the reason I believe I know it's true is I was conducting a wedding just two weeks ago somewhere, and the couple had chosen as the bridal uh, processional, not the recessional. Here comes the bride, the Wagner wedding march from Lohengrin, which was the bane of Episcopal ministers in the 60s and 70s, because brides and grooms would request it, and then the, uh, the very wonderful music director, who might have very definite ideas, said it was secular, or the rector said, but that's from a secular opera by Needless to say, Wagner, are you out of your mind? No way, Jose. So there was a there was an absolute interdict against Wagner's *Lohengrin*. Used da 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 and I saw rector after rector after rector fight this battle and get everybody upset and anxious, and everybody went into the wedding furious because either the rector, and it was usually he at that point a he, or the music director refused to play what everybody knew was beautiful, and I felt when I was in a very beautiful. Chapel recently conducting this wedding and it was used, it was perfectly fitting because it was it was lovely. It was absolutely right for the bride to come down. It was it, honoring and affirming and humble and sweet and dear and reverent and grave and joyous and expectant and hopeful and tender and kind. And it was Christian, albeit not mentioning the word Jesus and from a secular work, which you can say is or isn't depending on your uh, view of the um, actual story of Lohengrin. Well, I want to underline that, and the same goes with the other. And so, um, in a way, the Church of England made a very similar mistake when a lot of evangelicals and a number of Anglo-Catholics decided to fight on the question of remarriage after uh, divorce in the church. And they fought this battle and won it in the 70s and 80s, and it still is impossible, almost, to get married in church if you've been... If your spouse, first spouse is still living, and I understand the resistance, I understand where these clergy, many of them were very good friends of mine and bishop friends of mine, but I understand where they were coming from, but you know what's happened? People in England get married, I mean, everybody now gets married out of church. Not only do they follow the new thing of being married in gazebos and public parks and but actually, most of them do what Paul McCartney did. They go and they get married in the registry office. I understand that. But had the church been more welcoming and not had an arbitrary barrier uh, and extended uh, and seen the reality of hope of those people who, having had a terrible experience in a first marriage, were now attempting to to, to hear and to uh, experience God's blessing on their new, uh, more humbled uh, and hopeful second marriage, uh, the church wouldn't be boycotted the way it is in England. Uh, mess. I mean, so many marriages now in England are uh, just – they just assume – that they won't even approach the church. Now, um, all that is to say that to dismiss uh, Kipling's uh, theocentrism from uh, the understanding of where we're going is a uh, is to mistake the light that shines through recessional and children's song. And I think what I'll do now is simply uh, sing a children's song and then I'll make my final statements about uh, uh, Stuart's insight about um, the both and character of this man's light works. Now, children's song was written for Puck of Pooks Hill, and it was in the former hymnal, but you'll never find it today, and it went like this, and uh, generations of students at my prep school sang it, both as little ones and as uh, (coughs) fifth and sixth formers before we went to college, and although we didn't understand it, and we joked about one line uh, in little boy fashion uh, we all remember it, and I, I've memorized it. I can sing it, sight on un, text unseen, and so can uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, old Albanians. And here it goes
0: Father in heaven, who lovest all, oh, help thy children when they call, that they may build from age to age an undefiled heritage. Teach us to rule ourselves away, control and cleanly night and day. And that, by the way, only meant one thing if you were a boarder, That we may bring, if need arise, no maimed or worthless sacrifice. Now here comes the verse that we all would go as we would sing it. Teach us to look in all our ends, on thee for judge and not our friends, that we with thee may walk uncowed by fear or favor of the crowd. Um,
1: but look at it on thee for judge and not our friends what does a 7th grader or a 10th grader need to know which he never does or she until much later and finally I'm going to um, finish and sing the last two
0: verses teach us the strength capital S, that cannot seek by deed or thought to hurt the weak, that under thee we may possess man's strength to comfort man's distress. And finally, teach us delight in simple things and mirth that has no
1: bitter springs. Forgiveness, free of evil done, and love to all men neath the sun. Now, uh, notice that the 1940 hymnal did not uh, retain uh, the first two stanzas, which are uh, more sort of Princess Diana, uh, you know, Jerusalem, uh, what is that song that she loved so, of uh, the Elgar, um, Lord to this country, I do thee to thee this day, what is? Anyway, Americans didn't grow up with that hymn the way that English people did. But the hymn, hymn, hymn compilers for the 1940 book only included the um, six verses that we sang as children. Now these are very powerful. Is there any reason why we shouldn't sing that? Is there any reason that repentance, faith, hope, magnanimity, grace, and the desire to serve um, one's struggling fellow citizens, which we ourselves are, is there anything in that? I mean, one of uh, Kipling's uh, uh, greatest uh, uh, memorable poems, look it up, it's called Samuel Pepys, and it's a meditation on Pepys's diary, in which Kipling says the whole point of reading Pepys's diary with his confessions of his extramarital affairs and that terrible scene where his wife discovers him with a Servant girl and his own uh, boswellian uh, nocturnal goings out and his um, the lust that made him so guilty, and Samuel Pepys is so completely confessing of his own terrible feelings about himself, his own tremendous guilt, the fact that he loves his wife, whom he is routinely until finally he comes to his senses um, unfaithful to, and uh, the whole point of the reading of it says uh, 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 Well, I'll read it. It's better that uh, we should uh, actually um, hear the original words. Here it is. He wrote it in 1933, and he concludes his poem entitled Samuel Pepys. Bidding him... This is the muse bidding Samuel Pepys, bidding him write each sordid love, shame, panic, stratagem, and lie in full that sinners undiscovered like ourselves might say, tis I. Now that's the authentic voice of Rudyard Kipling. Now I'll uh, leave you um, with uh, having sung this. This is going to go on just a few more minutes because it's, in my opinion at least, uh, worthy. When you um, decide to study uh, Kipling's light works, and all of his poems are available, Oh yeah no. Um, on the Rudyard Kipling uh, adelaide Australia Gutenberg uh, site or the University of Adelaide, or on the um, uh, Read Books online, I think it 's called read Books online site because they 're in the public uh, they 're in the public domain because of copyright issues that never were fully solved either in his life or afterwards and um you 'll find this continuing both and he is not an either or figure every time he says, "Go for it, the next verse says, "But if you do, remember who you are." Or if you are totally down in the dumps, still go for it because the two exist at one time. This is why he always says, um, this explains if, you know, you um, do this, um, don't be distressed by lying, but don't lie. Dream, but don't dream too much. Speak your dreams, but don't trust in words. Um, love, but do not feel you need to be loved. He always takes away with the left hand, what he gives with the right, in such a way that the truth is honored. And so to say that he is a particular kind of an ideologue is entirely not true to the actual spirit of the hymns. And I've been through all of them. I think white man's burden probably is the one that... Most comes to being a kind of noblesse oblige uh, kind of thing with the less um, really of the kerseite, the underside, but all the others from Mandalay to when East is East and West is West, read that if you want to see the... The real uh, unmasking of racism towards the East on the part of a 19th century English uh, administrator. Read that if you want to see the fact that we are all brethren and sistren under the flesh. Or read Gunga Din, the remarkable Gunga Din, which I think, uh, I don't know the date on that, but... Uh, where <clears throat> but you're a better man than I am Gunga Din and when you actually read the whole poem which is longish and read it out loud it's verse it's a ballad you almost might say I think it's verse the overwhelming um, affirmation of the civil rights struggle <clears throat> as it is affirmed in the noblest possible way spanning even the existence of heaven and hell and the afterworld to quote Prince you will see in Gunga Din uh, the very um, broadening out and really pulling the rug from out from under any kind of arbitrary superiority based on some predicate of race or caste or any intrinsic adjective that describes something that you may have um, about your person that you think makes you superior to anyone else. Uh, Any kind of ism is undone by Gunga Din. And uh, you'll see it in Epitaphs of War. And I'm going to um, uh, conclude, actually, uh, with... um, the uh, power of a couple of the epitaphs of the war in 1914 wouldn't you think that when this was written, epitaphs of the war these are epitaphs for different kinds or individual dif- epitaphs for different individuals who died in World War I epitaphs uh, for example of servants who had gone with their masters, remember Downton Abbey To the trenches, epitaphs for a servant who died in the trenches or an epitaph for a Hindu sepoy in France or an epitaph for a coward who was shot for cowardice in the British Army in 1916 or two Canadians or a grave near Haifa and by the way I've been to those graves near Haifa I've been to the British graves near Haifa and stood and seen exactly the scene which he's describing or a man who was killed on his first day in the front at only age 17 or uh, a a gentleman a very refined esthete sort of an Oscar Wilde type who got drafted and was in the shot I mean who lost his life in trench warfare or a sentinel who was shot for falling asleep I mean what, what, is this some kind of jingoistic chauvinistic thing let me read what I regard as the uh, highest and uh, deepest and um, or a woman who was raped uh, and then revenged uh, in the say Lawrence of Arabia or in Belgium uh, the uh, Damascus front um, and or for actors who ended up dying in the fronts um, the one of journalists you've got to see. I mean, there's Megan Kelly. Is that her name? There's every, uh, every current journalist who thinks they're so important and so serious and who takes that kind of seriousness that anchor men and anchor women have today, this incredible seriousness. They think they're, they're giving us really important news. And as Huxley said, even good news is bad news. Th- think about that. Even, I think he said that, I know he said it in time. Devastop. never don't even listen to the news because, e- as far as your ego is concerned, the acquisitive defensive ego is concerned, even good news is bad news. Oh, well, um, he has an epitaph for journalists. He, he was one with which he clinches epitaphs of war. But my favorite one is this common form that is to say, the form that you could have put on uh, the, the common form of the epitaph that could have gone on anyone's tombstone in those vast Passchendaele cemeteries, which still exist. They're there. Um, I know people in Northern Ireland who uh, visit the, uh, the Ulster uh, Regiment's uh, vast uh, c- cemetery for the First World War, war dead every single summer in July. Common form, that is to say, here's an epitaph found right in the middle of Kipling's epitaphs for those who died in the war, men and women of all sorts. And this is the common epitaph If any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. Well, um, that's the power of Stuart Gerson's insight, which I believe is the true insight about everything from children's song to recessional, most clearly, from 1890, 1897, to um, almost everything he wrote. I could talk about the Mary Gloucester, which I think is one of the most wrenching and powerful and romantic and beautiful hymns, to sustaining lost love ever written, uh, and I don't think myself that there's a problem for modern thinking, but others do, and I'll accept that. The deep bottom line of Mary Gloucester, the Mary Gloucester from 1894, is something you'll never forget. It reminds me of uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, the 1966, or is it 1964, film directed by John Ford. Who put the cactus rose on Tom's casket? Hallie? Hallie? says the Jimmy Stewart character to the Vera Miles character, who put the cactus rose on Tom, the John Wayne's grave? Well, if you were moved by that in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, then The Mary Gloucester will not fail to move you, and yet it's a long, dialog complex poem of about eight pages. Well, that's all I had to say, and these are the lightworks of Rudyard Kipling, and this was episode 112, and I close with some music that is probably the most signal and important and finally resolving music for this subject that I could possibly choose. Thank you so much, and God bless. Every spaceman knows you just got
0: to have Hostess Twinkies along. Even space girls know it. You get a big delight in every bite. Delicious Hostess cream-filled Twinkies taste out of this world. With luscious, creamy white filling inside, soft golden sponge cake
1: outside. You get a big delight in every bite. Yep, smart spacemen always have
0: plenty of good-tasting Twinkies along. Wherever they go. Hostess Twinkies.